getting a late start. So that means late finish, doesn't it? So stick with me here and we'll, we'll try to get through the message today. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. And it is a privilege, a joy to return on this Sunday morning to the Word of God and here to the Gospel of Matthew where we're studying about the life and the work of the Savior. And in the past several messages, I've pointed out how the biblical account of Jesus differs from what many people think about him, his, the common perceptions that we have of him. Uh, the record of Jesus' life is found in Scripture, and the only record that we have of it is what we have in the Bible. Uh, there are no history books that have been written about him. Uh, there are no ancient scrolls that contain more of Jesus' activities. So you'll not find any records from any secular source than what's found here in Scripture. And I believe that God intended it that way because what he didn't want was for us to have humanistic views of Jesus and to have all of that muddled up with someone's opinions and uh, opinions could then be interpreted as facts. I had a friend once who had a PhD in history and I asked him how much of the history that we read uh, is actually true. And I suppose that he was a great skeptic because he said that probably 80% of what we read in history didn't happen in the way that we think that it did. And that's because history is written by people and people have their opinions of the facts and often those opinions color the facts. And if you question that, all you really need to do is look at some of the revisionist history that's written about America. A good example would be about the pilgrims that landed at Plymouth Rock and celebrated the first Thanksgiving. And the pilgrims were Puritans. And for anybody who knows anything about the Puritans and you've read their writings, you know that they had an unparalleled reverence for God. Their theology centered on giving God the glory for all things. And when they celebrated that first Thanksgiving, their intent was to praise God uh, for bringing them safely to the shores of America. And their purpose was to glorify God for the safety of that trip, his mercy in bringing them here. But if you pick up a modern high school history book today, you'll find curiously that God is written out of the picture. And instead of thanking God for his protection, revisionist history has changed this to say that the pilgrims were actually giving thanks to the Indians for their help. And no doubt that's what would happen if we had a secular account of Jesus' life it would rival the Bible, and so the Bible and that account would be pitted against one another. And I have no doubt that the secular account would win out. And that's because there is no unregenerate person, there is no uninspired person that would write the truth about Jesus, because that's not in the human heart to do so. And so we have this biblical account that really should answer all of the questions and lay aside all of the doubts about who Jesus was and what he did. And just to show you that secular history would never do justice to Jesus, all you have to do is see what people have done to the real record, to the true record that's found in the Bible. Because you have people that misinterpret what the Scripture says. They construct a Jesus that's nothing at all like the Bible says. 
And many people, of course, don't read the Bible. What they know about Jesus, what they know about Scripture is what's been told them by somebody else. And you know how the rumor mill goes, that when you repeat something often enough, and when you misinterpret facts often enough, and you give false statements often enough, then people come to believe those things, and they think it's the truth. And this is why that we don't use anything but the Bible from our pulpit. And this is why uh, we, believe the, we do believe the Bible is truth and that we discover that truth by very carefully taking every scripture and then explaining the meaning. We use the Bible. Uh, the Bible is not to us some ethereal thing. We read the Bible and we study it in order to find out the truth of Jesus. Now having said that, we have this wonderful passage about the mission of Jesus And the key verse to the section that we're reading today is verse number 18, where it says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Jesus is the chosen servant. He is the selected servant. And that's the theme of the message today. I'd like you to stand with me, please, once again as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse number 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today, and Lord, help us as we look into the scriptures. Give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is the second part of the message that I began last week. It's what you might call here in verse number 14 is the beginning of the end of Jesus' ministry. What happens here is really a crystallizing moment in the ministry of Jesus. If you want to call it a turning point, that would be all right. And that turning point is the event that happened at the beginning of the chapter. And this is the point where Jesus begins to deconstruct the self-righteous religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus attacked that system at its very core, which was the perversions that it made about the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day had become a very heavy, tedious burden that was placed upon the people by the religious leaders. And how the people stood in the eyes of God, and just as importantly, how they stood in the eyes of their religious leaders, depended upon their activities that they did on the Sabbath day. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that again, but suffice it to say that they had imposed imaginable uh, restrictions, unimaginable restrictions on the people, and how well the people uh, handled those restrictions was their ticket to heaven. 
And in the first part of this chapter, what Jesus did was to explode their teachings. What he did was simply unthinkable to them to do on the Sabbath. And so in their eyes, they had judged Jesus to be a great sinner. Now, that's not much of a problem to them if Jesus had been an ordinary man. I mean, they could have handled him just like they would anyone else that got out of line. But Jesus was not an ordinary man. No one could do the things that Jesus did. There was no one who could take the scriptures and explain them as he did. And so their, their religious leaders, these, the, the best that they had, had no answer for him. Jesus could handle the scripture like no others. And so their brightest, their best, their smartest, their wisest rabbis, the lawyers in their system had no answer for Jesus. And that made him the most dangerous person that they had ever met. And that's because if people believed in him, then the power and the prestige of the scribes and Pharisees was ruined. And they would lose their self-esteem with the people. They would lose their leadership. They would lose their income. And even possibly they might lose their, lose their lives. And that's really no different from religion today that perverts the truth about Jesus. Uh, they don't want people to know the truth, and this is why they don't preach from the Bible. The Bible exposes them. This is why the Roman Catholicism says that the Bible gets its truth from the church. And so the church has the ability to change it, to amend it, to redo it, because the church is the ultimate authority and not the Bible. But whenever there's an attack on the truth, it has to be met. And Jesus responded to these wrong interpretations of the Pharisees. And this is what leads us to verse number 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. Now in the last message, we discussed that as the plot against the Savior. Because from this point, the scribes and the Pharisees are involved in planning and scheming and trying to figure out a way that they could get rid of Jesus. And they are, in effect, planning the murder of Jesus. And as we'll soon see, they really weren't doing anything than working within the eternal plan of God. And they didn't know it. But when their schemes came to fruition and they had crucified Jesus on the cross, that they hadn't destroyed him. They had destroyed themselves. Now, if you didn't hear last week's message, I encourage you to get a copy of that because it'll help you to understand uh, the background of this plot. But I want to move on today to look at this lovely passage of Scripture that's dropped down into this evil morass of plotting and scheming. And we see here the sweetness of the Savior and how vastly different he was in character from those that tried to kill him. And this is an important passage of Scripture, and, and I'm going to take some time with it. Uh, we're just going to get a start into the second point today, then we'll continue next week and bring it to its conclusion. So today I'd like to talk to you, beginning with this second point, and I said we'll finish it next week, and that is the plan for the servant. The plan for the servant. Now, there's nothing in the plotting and scheming of the Pharisees that was done without God's knowledge. Now, we can travel backwards in time to the beginning at the Garden of Eden, and there we can find the intention of God concerning Christ. You go back to Genesis 3.15 in what's called the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first preaching of the gospel. There you'll find God's intention for Christ, that God intended that Jesus Christ would be bruised. 
God had intentions for the world. And that was the consistent plan from the very beginning. And all the steps to bring that plan to pass were under the divine ordination of God. I don't think that I need to tell you, or hopefully I don't, that God began this world by by coming or developing a plan to save man from this, this horrible mistake that was made in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus is that plan. Jesus is the servant that would implement God's plan. And while the heart of man is vile and wicked, and while there are men here that are planning the the death of Jesus Christ, this passage is dropped down into this narrative, and it shows us the love and the mercy of God to give us a Savior who would keep us from destroying ourselves. Now, there's several words that I want to give you that describe how this plan was fulfilled in Christ. I'm going to give you a couple of these today, and the rest we'll get next week. But the first of these words is the word contrast. It's the contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I could just as well say the contrast between Jesus and me or the contrast between Jesus and you. Because what we cannot do is to sit back in judgment of these Pharisees without considering that we were just like them before God touched our hearts. And I suppose one of the hardest points that there is to get across to people is that we are sinners and ultimately deep down in our hearts we hate God. A few weeks ago... I was sitting across my desk from a person and I was explaining God's salvation of sinners. And as I always do, I start with the need for salvation and I start by making this statement that we are enemies of God, that we hate God's ways, we've sinned against him, we have broken God's law. And I remember there was this incredulous look on the person's face thinking, how dare you say that I hate God. How dare you say that I'm God's enemy? And yet that is what the Bible says. Romans says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And you see there that the Bible presupposes the condition of unbelievers. It says that they are enemies of God. Then Paul goes on in the 8th chapter of Romans, and he says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Eastern's Bible Dictionary defines enmity as deep-rooted hatred. James said that the friendship of the world or friendship with the world is enmity, deep-seated hatred against God. So anyone who is a part of the world system, anyone who hasn't been changed by faith in Jesus Christ is the enemy of God. Now where are you going to hear that preached anymore? Where are you going to have people talking about this? Why is there no call for repentance from sin? Why is it that there is no call for faith in Jesus Christ? Well, the reason is churches have rejected the Bible's teaching that people are sinners that all people are the enemies of God and they're on their way to hell. And so what most churches will tell you today is what you need is some self-improvement. What you need is a little bit more self-esteem. 
You need to think positively. But the Bible says that all of us are rotten and there's none of us that can make ourselves better. Very simply put, we are evil. This is what the scripture says about man. Now, the the Pharisees were just a very open example of it, but that evil that was in the heart of these Pharisees lurks in the heart of every single person without Christ. These Pharisees were unconcerned about souls. They were concerned about self. And Jesus threatened their power and their prestige. And how odd that it was that they were so concerned about Jesus taking off a few heads of wheat on the Sabbath day and eating those because he was hungry, while at the same time they're conspiring to kill him on the Sabbath day, to commit murder. I mean, how much more hypocritical than that can you get? Now, the contrast with Jesus is that he always had people on his mind. He always cared about people, and he didn't want to hurt them. And we see in Jesus' example back in verses 11 and 12 where Jesus talked about a sheep that, was, that fell into a pit, and he made an example there that the Pharisees thought more of a sheep than they did of a man. A sheep was something that affected his pocketbook. And if he loses his sheep, then he loses his money. And here was Jesus that healed a man on the Sabbath day. And these Pharisees were totally unconcerned about that man. They weren't concerned that he was healed and he was saved from his sins. And so you can see that there's quite a different character between Jesus and the Pharisees and also between Jesus and us. They were trying to hold on to their power. They were trying to hold on to prestige. And I want you to listen for just a moment to this passage in John 11. And I think most of you are familiar with John 11 because this is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And what an astounding miracle that that was. Here was a man dead for four days. Dead so long the Bible says that he began to stink in the tomb. And Jesus went to that tomb and raised Lazarus. Now what do you do with a man like that? Not Lazarus, but Jesus. What do you do with him? What do you do with somebody who's able to raise someone from the dead? Do you believe in him? Do you bow and worship him? Not the Pharisees. Here's their reaction. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. And there's their councils again. And said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. So there's the problem. They're afraid the Romans will come and take away their place and their nation. So they're worried about what the Romans would do. They would lose their lofty seats in the synagogues. They would lose that position. And they weren't really at all concerned about what God could do. Now it's interesting that in the following verses, the high priest made a prophecy concerning Jesus that he couldn't have made unless it was forced upon him by the Holy Spirit of God. The high priest said, if this is from God, then we can't fight against it. But you know what they did? They did everything they could to fight against it. They plotted, they schemed, they decided by subterfuge to lie against him, to find some kind of charge that would stick against him that the Romans would crucify him for. And they did that because they were worried about their position. But you know what the Bible says about Jesus? In the book of Philippians, it tells us there that he was not worried about holding on to his position. It says that he stepped down from his throne in glory in order to become a servant. 
Now we've read the word servant here in Matthew twelve eighteen, but that's a different word than the one we find over in the book of Philippians and in other passages. In Philippians, um, the apostle Paul uses a different word, and he tells us there that not only was Christ a servant, but he was the lowliest of servants. And if you look at the etymology of that word servant, you'll find that its meaning comes from the galley slaves that were in a Greek ship. It comes from the word under rower. And an under rower was a man that was on the lowest tier of the rowers on a Greek ship. Now on these ancient Greek ships, you would have three tiers of rowers. And uh, the, the under rowers are the ones at the very bottom of the ship. These are slaves of the lowest sort. So they're stuck down there in the nastiest part of the ship. The bottom was the hottest part. There are two rows of slaves that are above them, and the sweat and the spit and the urine runs down on these slaves at the very bottom. And these are also oarsmen that have the shortest oars. They have the shortest stroke, which means they have to row a whole lot faster to keep up with the ones that are above them. So this under rower, the one in the bottom of the ship, he's the worst. This is the least glamorous job if you wanted to compare it and say it's any glamour to it at all. And the Bible is telling us that Jesus stepped down to that type of position. That he wasn't concerned about what they would do to him personally, but his intent was the welfare of others. And that's the most notable contrast between him and these self-righteous Pharisees. There are people that love the chief seats in the synagogues. There are people that love to wear the fine, fancy clothes. And what they would never do is to step down and help someone that they thought was beneath them. But this was part of God's plan for Jesus. He came to this earth to be born in a stable. His parents were poor, and throughout his entire life he lived in poverty. And his poverty was because Jesus would never seek any personal gain at the expense of the people. Now what could have happened is that Jesus could have been born rich and stayed rich. Or Jesus could have been born poor and then gained riches. But Jesus was born poor and he stayed poor because it wasn't about him, it was about others. So he was a selfless person, and that's a far cry from the attitude of these scribes and Pharisees. They tried to kill him in order to maintain self, and what Jesus did was to come to die and give up self so that others might live. Now, do you see how different that is? They were conformed to the plan that men have for self. What can I do to make myself great? What is it that I can do to increase my stature? What, what can I do to make a name for me? But Jesus wasn't conformed to those typical plans that men have for themselves. He was conformed to the plan of God. And that's why he was called a servant. Now we notice another word that describes Jesus. And that he was chosen. Jesus was chosen by the Father. And perhaps you may think, well I should have put that first. But I wanted you to get the immediate context of it first. That this beautiful passage is put here in distinction to these wicked men that had their own plans in mind. Jesus had God's plan in mind because he was God's chosen. And there's one central plan that runs throughout the entire life of Jesus. One thing that he concerned himself with and that was that he would fulfill God's plan. Verse number 17 says that Jesus fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah said about him. 
Isaiah was speaking under inspiration of God, and he says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that this word servant is different from the one that we have in the book of Philippians. And this is a word that can be translated as a son or a servant. And it's a very fitting word for Matthew to use here because Christ's sonship is related to him being a servant. Now, I know that people have a hard time putting this thing together and sorting it all out. How could Jesus be the son of God? Well, at the same time, he says, I am one with my father. How is it that Jesus is both of those? And that's mostly beyond our understanding, but perhaps it helps us to see it if we relate it to the servanthood. And we have a picture that's preserved here that a son is in subjection to his parents. And Jesus is that divine son who willingly subjected himself to the father in order to carry out the father's plan. And if you'll notice that second phrase in verse 18, he says, My beloved in whom I am well pleased. And do you remember those were the Father's words at his baptism? At the inauguration of, of Jesus into his public ministry, the voice of God the Father was heard from heaven, and he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that fits very well with this word that Matthew's chosen to describe Jesus. It's the same as the prophet said concerning him. Servant is a word that refers to a specially trusted servant. Now, we're not talking about an ordinary run-of-the-mill household servant, but we're talking about one in which the master has his full confidence. An interesting thing apart about this word is it's the same word that we find in the Old Testament that used, that's used of Abraham and his servant. Do you remember how Abraham's servant was sent to find a bride for Isaac? And that servant was the one that Abraham had his confidence in. He was the servant that was over his entire household. And so he entrusted that servant to go and find a bride for his beloved son Isaac. And that's the beautiful picture that we have of Christ here. Christ said, the Father has given me his authority. All power is given unto me. And so the father trusted him to carry out that plan of redemption in every detail. Now Gary sings that song, My Redeemer is faithful and true. Everything that he said he will do. And the father had that kind of confidence in Jesus. There was never any doubt that he would fulfill God's eternal purpose. Now in the book of Isaiah, there are four passages that refer to Christ as the servant of Jehovah. The one we have here comes from Isaiah 42. I want to read this to you, and we want to notice how Matthew has taken this passage in Isaiah and interpreted it to refer to Jesus. In Isaiah 42, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. Now, if you're wondering what that's all about, I'm going to explain that next week. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. And you see, this is the confidence that God has in his servant son. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. In Isaiah 50, verse 7, I, Isaiah quoted the words of Christ there. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I shall not be confounded. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. 
and I know that I shall not be ashamed. I have set my face like a flint. Now, that's not a common expression that we use today, so what does he mean? I've set my faith, my face as a flint. Well, John Gill explains that expression. He says, Christ was hardened against all opposition, resolute and undaunted, constant and unmoved by the words and blows of men, not to be browbeaten or put out of countenance by anything they can say or do. He was not dismayed at his enemies who came to apprehend him, though they came to him as a thief with swords and staves, nor in the high priest's palace, nor in Pilate's hall, in which, in both which places he was roughly used, nor at Satan and its principalities and powers, nor at death itself with all its terrors. So the father entrusted him with this plan that was determined before the foundation of the world. There was agreement that was made between the father and son. And we know this by reading the story. The way was going to be hard. The way was torturous. It was condescending. It was far beneath the office of Christ. And so far below that we would think it unthinkable that Jesus would ever consider such a thing. But the father knew that he would. He was resolute and there was nothing that would deter him. And so we find that when the timing was right, what did Jesus do? He set his face like a flint. He was determined that he was going to Jerusalem at exactly the right time, and there he would be crucified. And remember the disciples tried to stop him. They tried to deter him, but he set his face like a flint. He was determined because God had put his trust in him, and he would not fail. Now, there are other passages in Isaiah that the New Testament tells us refers to Jesus. Do you remember how that Philip the Evangelist interpreted Isaiah 53 to the Ethiopian eunuch? This man was sitting in his chariot and he was reading from Isaiah chapter 53 and he was puzzled about to whom it was referring. So Philip walked up to him and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said to Philip, how can I unless someone should guide me? Or how can I unless someone would explain this to me? In Acts 8.32 it says, The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. That's Isaiah 53. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. You see, Jesus fulfilled words of prophecy. Now, have you ever wondered about this? Which came first, the prophecy or the fulfillment of the prophecy? Now, we ask that question, don't we? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? So which came first? Was it the prophecy or is it the fulfillment of the prophecy? Well, I think most of us would say, well, of course, the prophecy came first. Isaiah said this 700 years before Christ came into the world. So certainly the prophecy came first. But that's not the way that God works. You understand this? That is not the way that God works. This is a predetermined plan. It was so determined. The scriptures say that Christ was chosen by God and there was surety in this. So that in the book of Revelation, it states it like this. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so what comes first? 
Christ's death or the prophecy, the fulfillment of it. That's kind of hard for us to figure out, isn't it? But according to Scripture, it is this, this fulfillment of it that actually comes first. First Peter, that we read just a moment ago, said, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So is there ever any doubt about what Jesus would do? No, because he's the chosen, trusted servant. He's the one in whom God is well pleased. He's the one that never fails. And so no matter the personal agony that it would bring him, he was willing to do it because he loved us. Isaiah says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now, do you see what an oasis that this portion of Scripture is? On one hand, you have that wicked plot of the scribes and Pharisees. They can't see any further than self. They have no plan except for for self-promotion. What can I get out of this? Are the people oppressed? Are the people suffering from an unbearable burden? Have we made the Sabbath impossible, an impossible yoke to bear? Are we concerned about their souls? No. We're concerned about us. Our plan is to lift us up. And how distinct that is from the plan of God, because it was his plan to put Christ down. It was his plan to let him bear the insufferable burden. It was his plan to take, to let him take all of our pain and sorrow so that one day that we would be exalted with him. His plan was to yoke us to him so that he could bear all of the weight. You see what a difference maker this is? Everything that he is, we're not. We're against God, we're sinners, we're enemies. But thank God, as Romans says, when we were enemies, he reconciled us to him by the death of his son. He is the trusted servant. Now, friends, that's the Jesus that I want to tell you about. I don't want to give you a secular history of Jesus, and that's because I don't want anything to stand between you and the truth of who Jesus is. I don't want anybody to muddy up the waters so that you don't clearly see Jesus. So what do we do then? Well, we look into the infallible, inspired word of God, and we find out who Jesus is. And then we take that a step further. We also look into the infallible, inspired word of God to find out who we are. And then when we find out who we are, then we begin to understand why Jesus did what he did, why it was so necessary for him to do what he did. It was important that Jesus performed the trust that God had in him. You know why? Because if Jesus did less than what he did, if he came here and lived a life and didn't go to the cross, even though he was a perfect man, even though he's a perfect example, even though he gives a great testimony, even though he's so good to model your life after, if he didn't do what he did, there's not a one of us in the building today or in the world that could ever be saved. Jesus had to die on the cross. And that was the Father's plan. God chose him for this. And this was the way it was going to work out from the day that he was born in Bethlehem to the day 33 years later that he went to the cross. It's God's plan.
plan. And Jesus was willing to do it. Now, folks, that's the Jesus that I want you to know. And I just pray, God, that he'd open your eyes to see him that way. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved and whom my soul is well pleased. And to that we say, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage of scripture. The beloved servant, the one who's chosen, selected by God to come into this world to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Oh, we thank you so much for that that gift of Jesus Christ, the gift of your Son. How great the Father's gift to us. We thank you so much for it. Lord, we pray that you would speak to hearts today and if there's someone here who hasn't trusted Jesus as Savior, they would clearly understand that without him we remain enemies of God. Without him, the wrath of God is still upon us and we must believe him to have that burden of sin taken away. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. And may we understand the hope of eternal life is in him. Bless us as we sing and leave this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.